You're listening to Sermon Audio from Waynesboro Grace. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples making disciples. For more information about our church, you can find us online at waynesborograce.org or on Facebook at Waynesboro Grace. Bibles, grab them and turn over to Second Peter. We're going to look at a few verses in chapter one together this morning. And Second Peter hit, hits on many of the things we've actually been talking about over the last several weeks together as we have gotten into this series on roots. And we're going to see just big picture the book of Second Peter actually hits on an eternal perspective. And Peter's writing to these people. It's the second letter that he's written to him or them, and it's why we call it Second Peter, quite frankly. And he is writing to them, encouraging them to live in a certain way because of the grace they have received in light of the promised return of Jesus. And like we saw last week, there were some false teachers in the mix, teaching and telling the people that were in this group that maybe that's not such a big deal or maybe that's not as truthful as Peter might indicate or have you believe. And we can actually get a glimpse of that. If you just look over at 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 4, you can see that he's introducing the day of the Lord, which just is a, it's a way to refer to the return of Christ when he is promised to come and return. And the, in chapter 4, we, or verse 4 of chapter 3, Peter writes, they will say, in reference to these false teachers that he's just spent all of chapter 2 talking about and writing about, where is the promise of his coming? See, there was the question, uh, where, where is this Jesus that you said is coming back? And he continues, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These false teachers, in part, were, were teaching a lot of things that were false, but were in part saying, look, the, the clock that began at creation has just continued to run. Where is this promised Return And so as Peter writes to this group of people, he writes to them in this context where there are others there opposing what it is that he has said. And he is encouraging them to live because of the grace and mercy that they have received. Because, that, because all things in chapter 1 verse 3 have been granted to them for life and godliness, that there should be a discernible difference in their actions today because of what the Lord has done in their lives, but yet also His promised return. It's very similar to what we began thinking about in regards to an eternal focus. This idea that on the grand scale of time, of eternity, that you and I are not the white tape, you and I are the blue line on the white tape. We're but a blip on the radar in regards to or set against and put on the backdrop of eternity. What we do here does indeed matter, but it does not matter in comparison to eternity. And Peter's writing to them, encouraging them to live in a, live in a certain way now because of what is 
and has been promised to be true. And last week we tried to think through and look at what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 2 regarding how you and I are actually the ones rooted. If we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he's rooted us in him. That he is building us up in him. That he's establishing us. That he's, he's holding us fast. Now, we're commanded to hold fast to him. But the decisiveness of whether or not that holding fast actually happens is a work that he does. Not a work that we're commanded to do. We are commanded to hold fast, but it's a decisive action by him on us. It's part of this glorious gospel This good news is part of what the Bible even gives to us when it just helps us think through our actions and our works and what it looks like to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. And Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, that we've been saved by grace. It's not a work of ourselves. It's not of our own doing, but we're actually God's workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works and We do those things because of his grace, not in any way, shape, or form to try to earn his grace. And he will hold us fast. He will sustain us to the end. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul, in helping us think through what it looks like to walk in him, to live for him, to have actions that flow from faith, he first began guiding and directing our attention to what was true of us, that we're rooted in Christ, that we're built up in Christ, that we're sustained or established by Christ. And then we're to abound in thanksgiving in the midst of whatever the joyous circumstances might be, whatever the difficult circumstances might be that we walk through, whatever the trial might be. That we're to abound in thanksgiving. And then in verse 8, Paul says that we're to see, we're to watch out, we're to look for, be on guard, that no one takes us captive. That we don't become plunder that's led away in a spiritual battle and warfare. That we don't become captive to philosophy or empty deceit, lies that are based on human tradition, based on elemental principles that sound really good and really plausible in the world scheme and the world system but aren't based on or according to Christ. We'll see some of those same similar things here today in Second Peter. But Peter goes one step further for us which will be helpful to us as we think about this next root that you and I are to plant and what it looks like to have Lives that follow the Lord, that are built on the foundation of His Word, where we have planted ourselves deeply in His Word. The, the Bible gives us a ton of metaphors and pictures of and for God's Word. It's a lamp unto our feet, it's a light unto our path, it's a foundation. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that the wise man builds his house upon the rocks, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. It's a foundation that we build our lives on. It's also something that we need to root ourselves in. And as we do, and where we'll end today, looking at Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, we actually become rooted, strengthened. We flourish. We bear fruit. 
we do this thing called disciple-making disciples. And that's what we're after in thinking through these different roots for us to plant in our hearts and in the soil of our hearts that we want to follow the Lord well. We want to ask this question, what does it look like to follow him? And we began thinking through, what does it look like to have an eternal perspective? What does it look like to then, to then not move beyond Christ and what he is doing to us and what he's already done to us? And then how we fall in behind that and how we fit in to follow him. And today we will look at God's word together In some ways, the big question that exists for you and I as we live out our daily lives, it's the question that Paul hinted at last week. It's the question that Peter gets after. It's the question perhaps that helps us best summarize what it is that we need to do is this. How do we know what's true? If we're going to follow Paul's instruction and we're we're going to watch out for philosophy and empty deceit, if we're going to follow Peter's instruction here and today, if we're going to follow the Lord, if we're going to be disciple-making disciples, how do we know what's true? Well, the short answer to that question is God's word tells us what's true. But we want to think through that a little bit more and let Peter give us some instruction regarding that. So before we go any further, let's pray together. We're going to hop into the text in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, and there I think we'll see some things that'll be helpful for us to understand how God's word shapes, guides, and directs us as we await that promised return of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a, it's a light unto our path. It's a lamp unto our feet. God, we pray now that as we look at your word, that you would help us to see what it is that you have said. God, we don't need my words today. We need to understand your word. God, we believe that you have spoken and that it's in our best interest to draw near and listen. Help us do that. God, would your spirit work in such a way that the spiritual truths that your word reveals would be understandable by us? God, would you help us to see more of who you are and your love for us and what it is that you have done and why we are to root and build our lives on this bedrock foundation of your word? And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thinking through that question of how do we know what's true, my mind almost immediately goes to the idea of directions. And how do you know you're going in the right direction? If we're going to be disciple-making disciples, how do we know that we're moving and walking and following the right way? And, and, and as I think through directions, I, th- I think back to when Carrie and I lived in Indiana, and, and most certainly when we just had Allegra, if not Allegra, and, 
Adelaide, we would make trips out to Pennsylvania, to the Lancaster County area, and we'd see Carrie's family, and we'd usually do a Thanksgiving one, which was a condition for, for, for us to get married, was I had to bring her out for Thanksgiving every year, and we'd come out for the beach in the summer, and we'd, we'd just take trips out here and um, spend time together. And the way we did it when we had young kids, when Adelaide was maybe not even born or Allegra was just one or two years old, is that we would, we would get up really, really early and we would try to, we'd try to move and have the majority of our trip done when it was dark as one of the best ways to encourage the little ones to sleep. And, and so as the primary driver, I would have to find and figure out all sorts of ways to keep myself entertained and keep my mind alert. And the answer wasn't just drink lots of coffee, because usually what you put in needs to come out at some point, and we didn't want to have a lot of stops. And so I found that jazz music and sermons engaged my mind and kept me awake on those trips through the mountains of Pennsylvania. Um, but then I also found that my mind wandered a little bit. And there was one trip in particular where we were coming on the entrance ramp, getting onto 7076 on the toll road. And as you do, whenever you get onto the highway, there's a series of signs that, uh, that, that are displayed pretty soon after you begin to get up to speed. And they tell you what road you're on, and perhaps there's a speed limit sign there as well. And the thought hit me, how terrible would it have been if getting on that entrance ramp and up to speed, I figured out that I was going the wrong way? How awful would that have been? And that was enough fodder for me to have maybe another 10 minutes of alertness. But then my, man, my mind began to wander even further. How awesome would it be to somehow coordinate all the signs or enough people to take all the signs on the toll road and swap them? Now, never actually tried to do that, but... The idea of this massive statewide prank came to mind, and then thinking through, how do we know what direction we're going? The answer at that point is, you're now misled because the information is completely wrong. To know where we're going is incredibly important. It's important when we drive, it's important in life. And the question of how do we know what's true is an incredibly important one. If we're going to glorify God by being disciple, making disciples, we have to plant the root of God's word in our lives. And Peter's writing this letter encouraging his audience to follow Jesus and to do so in light of what Jesus has promised, and that would be to return. And however, we saw last week, as we've already briefly mentioned, uh, there were false teachers in the midst, teaching contradictory messages. And so Peter is going to make this contrast between himself and these false teachers that were in the church that he was writing to. And in doing so, he's going to talk about truth, and he's going he's to put forward two forms of evidence. And the first is the eyewitness testimony that he has. You might call it eyewitness testifying. And we'll see that in verses 16 to 18. The second form of evidence that he puts forward is Holy Spirit carrying. The first in verses 16 to 18 is eyewitness testifying. The second is in verses 19 to 21, Holy Spirit 
carrying. And as we think through Peter as being an eyewitness, here's one of the things that he does. He, he grounds his authority as one who's qualified to speak, as one different than these false teachers, as one revealing truth in what he saw. He grounds his authority similarly to what we see being the qualifications to be an apostle. If you wanted, you could turn to Acts chapter 1 and verses 21 to 26. You're going to see Peter himself stand up in the upper room and have some conversations with those that were there about what it looked like and how to proceed replacing Judas. And in doing so, Peter outlines two forms of qualifications that need to be met. The first one is very explicit. Peter says that we need to put forth two men, is what they ended up choosing, but two men who were eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. And then the second is just as important, but it's a little more indirectly implied. As they pray, right before they cast lots, they pray that the Lord would reveal who it was that he had called. We see in that passage, and we see demonstrated in others, that the qualifications to be an apostle is to be an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus, and to have been called by that office. Now, here's the thing. You and I, we don't get to run in that circle anymore. There is no capital A apostles existing in our world today. There's the gift, the spiritual gift of apostle. That's just the giftedness to take the gospel to places it has never gone before. And we know men and women personally that are gifted to do so. Called and wired and gifted to go take the gospel to the farthest ends of the earth. But that is different than Peter being called an apostle and replacing Judas with Matthias to the office of apostle. But here, Peter puts to forward eyewitness testimony in regards to what it means to have the authority and the qualifications to be trusted. And there in verse 16, he writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. The first thing Peter does, the first form of evidence that Peter puts forward is this. I saw and I heard. And what I am revealing to you are not cleverly devised myths. One commentator translated that phrase this way, and I just found it helpful. Ingeniously concocted myths. It's not what we're doing here, friends. What we're telling you is exactly what we saw. It's exactly what we heard. We were eyewitnesses. It's interesting that what Peter 
says in regards to these cleverly devised myths is actually similar to something the Apostle Paul said that we had looked at when we went through the book of 1 Corinthians together. And he wrote in the beginning of chapter 1, well, about midway through the chapter, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, but the cross, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, the Apostle Paul and Peter are both indicating that they are speaking true things. The Apostle Paul specifically referencing that his message isn't going to impress you the way the orators in the city of Corinth sought to impress you. It is not going to come with eloquent words of wisdom. Peter saying, look, we didn't, we didn't find ways to ingeniously concoct stories to somehow manipulate you and your behavior. No, what we did when we made known to you was we revealed truth. That word made known is translated and defined as revealing information. Perhaps, and more than likely, content that wasn't already known. Peter's talking about teaching them things they may not have heard or understood before. And he tells us what they are. The power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I think Peter's referring to here when, when we have uh, maybe a general idea of the life and ministry of Jesus. He's very specifically going to begin talking about the transfiguration in the very next verse. But when Peter talks about power, what he's talking about in reference to the power of Jesus is the water changing, limb restoring, storm ceasing, demon booting, 5,000 feeding, sight restoring, glory revealing, dead made breathing again power of Jesus. He's like, we didn't, we didn't find ways to create fables or myths that were clever. Now what we did was tell you what we saw. When he talks about the coming Again, he's talking about the promised return of Jesus. It was one of the points of contention these false teachers were bringing up. Where is this man? Because it seems to us like the earth and the world and life just keeps marching on. Peter's saying, look, we didn't make it up. We saw it. We were eyewitnesses. And then he, he in verses 17 to 18, un, unfolds this, what we might call this penultimate experience. An experience that only Peter, James, and John experienced. An experience that the other nine disciples did not experience. An experience that Matthias did not experience. I mean, if you wanted to put one forward as a qualification, like this probably should be at the top of the list, but this was just reserved for these three men. It was the penultimate experience of them seeing and getting a glimpse that was never before seen or understood and never after again until the coming of the Lord. A glimpse of the glory of Jesus. They saw him transfigured. Peter tells us about that. For 
when he received honor and glory from God. And the voice borne to him by the majestic glory. Notice there that the name Peter gives to God the Father. When he received, that's God the Son, received honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice born to him by the majestic glory, that would be God the Father as well. Notice that Peter's, Peter's very, very succinctly and explicitly telling us that God the Father and God the Son are one. That God the Father, who is the majestic glory, let the majestic glory of God the Son be more fully seen than had ever been seen before. They got a glimpse. They heard. They saw. What they heard was God the Father, the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, look, we heard the very voice. And we were with Him on the holy mountain. We saw the Son in all of its glory. We heard the Father speak. Peter says, look, I, I... I have the authority and the qualifications to tell you about him. And I didn't concoct cleverly devised, ingeniously created myths to somehow impress you or manipulate your behavior. Now what I shared, what I revealed, what he reveals to us even in his letter today, it's truth. See, we root ourselves in the word of God because it is not a collection of myths and fables that intend to inspire good moral behavior. I mean, as we talk about being disciple-making disciples, living lives that glorify God by being disciple-making disciples, I mean, quite frankly, we're, we're talking about good moral behavior. But we root ourselves in God's word not because, or because it is not a collection of cleverly devised myths that are somehow intended to inspire us to live a certain way. Rather, the word of God is the testimony of eyewitnesses or their close associates of real historical events. I love what Kevin DeYoung said in his book, taking God at his word. From the very beginning, Christianity tied itself to history. It's a simple statement, but it is a profound one that just serves as a reminder for you and I that what is contained in the Bible is the eyewitness account or the account from the close associates of those eyewitnesses of what actually happened and they didn't devise these clever myths they gave us God's word it's as if Peter's saying what we taught you was true because we were there now in verses 19 and 20 Peter's going to talk about Holy Spirit carrying and this is even more significant and more profound and we need to just let Peter show us how we're to think about this next section we need to look and see where Peter goes because what he's going to do is he's going to take his own experience his own experience as being being called by Jesus 
living with Jesus for three years, seeing Jesus do all of these miracles, being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, seeing what none of the other disciples except James and John had ever seen and none of them had seen since. He's going to take all of that and he's going to say, you know what? That actually is second tier. Because we have something more sure than even the greatest of experiences that I experienced. And that's God's word. Peter places all of his own personal experience second to the prophetic word. He's saying, look, we told you truthful things about the life of Jesus, about the ministry of Jesus, about the transfiguration of Jesus, about the promised return of Jesus, and the scriptures are even more reliable than what we saw and what we heard and what we have made known to you. His experience was real. His authority as an apostle was real. The truth that he revealed was true. But more than that, Peter elevates in verse 19 in verse 20 and in verse 21 god's word higher than it all look at verse 19 with me and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place Until the day dawns and the morning star rejoices in your hearts, knowing that first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is actually one of the verses that's important in helping us understand what the doctrine of inspiration is. And we're not going to work through a formal definition together regarding that, but this is an important text regarding and helping us understand what the doctrine of inspiration is. And we'll look at that and just kind of think through some of what that means. But Peter begins in verse 19 talking about the prophetic word. It's a reference to God's word. He, in verses 19 to 21, will use some form of the word prophetic or prophecy three different times. He uses it in the beginning. We have the the prophetic word. He uses it in regards to prophecy of Scripture. And then he just says, but no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man. Specifically here, I believe Peter has in mind the Old Testament. That was the word of God as they had it. However, even in this book, we can already begin to see that there was an understanding emerging from these apostles, from these eyewitness and called leaders, that God was using them to write Scripture. You actually pick that up in chapter 3, in verses 15 to 16. He's actually going to reference the Apostle Paul. And I love these verses because he does so referencing that what Paul writes is sometimes a little difficult to understand. But what he says there is, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul 
also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Have you ever read a book the Apostle Paul wrote and kind of scratched your head and went, I'm not sure I understand everything there is there? Well, you're in good company with Peter and the rest of us. But he says, look, the, the ignorant and unstable twist those things to their destruction. But then notice this last phrase, as they do the other scriptures. Peter in chapter 1 talks about how no prophecy of scripture was because of man's interpretation, but the Holy Spirit carried them along. And here just two chapters later talks about the Apostle Paul writing scripture. So we know specifically Peter's referencing the Old Testament. But I think there's good reason to believe that he's also acknowledging that there is a growing collection of new scripture that's happening through the pen of the writers of what we'll understand now to be the New Testament. One of whom he identifies as the Apostle Paul. But back to verse 19 of chapter 1. Peter says this. We have something more sure or more fully confirmed. That, that's defined as something that can be relied on and doesn't disappoint. And this, this word, more fully confirmed, it's actually just one word as Peter wrote it. It's an adjective and it's an adjective comparing two different things. And what he's saying is that the prophetic word is compared to and greater than the experiences that I just described. Now, it it can be argued that maybe that more fully confirmed statement is a reference to the transfiguration or the experiences of Peter more fully confirming the scriptures. But I think really difficult in that conclusion is what Peter says in the rest of verse 19 and all of verse 20 and all of verse 21. Peter's not saying that his experiences have led to greater confirmation of the scriptures. I believe Peter's saying that the scriptures are greater than his experiences. And ever, however great they were, let's be honest, they're probably better than ours. God's word's better. God's word's more sure. God's word is more reliable. John MacArthur said this, and I think it's helpful. The word is a more reliable source than the experience of anybody, even the apostles. It is more specific. It is more detailed. It is more exact. It is more full than anyone's experience could ever be. I want us to skip the second part of verse 19 and hop down into verses 20 and 21 because I think Peter makes his point clear. And he says, look, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That word interpretation means explanation. It means, it means their own thoughts. What he's saying is that, look, that Scripture didn't come from someone's own thoughts. There's something else happening, and that's something else he actually tells us in verse 21. 
No prophecy, no scripture, no prophetic word as he's been referring to the Bible, God's word as, was ever produced by the will of man. So you want to understand what it means and what he's saying that no scripture comes from someone's own interpretation or is birthed from someone's own interpretation. Look at the explanation that Peter himself gives us in chapter 1 verse 21. For there is the explanation coming. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It just wasn't men coming up with these things. They didn't give birth to it. They didn't produce it. But men, there's our contrast, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In verse 21, that word carried shows up two times. It's going to show up one time as the word produced, more than likely in your translation. And it's going to show up a second time as the word carried at the end of the verse. Peter's just saying, look, the distinction needs to be made. It needs to be understood. First of all, that God's word is greater than the greatest spiritual experiences. God's word is more sure. God's word is more reliable. It's more fully confirmed. And here's why. Because it wasn't actually men reporting to you. It was God himself carrying them along. One of the helpful ways we can understand what this word carry means is the way Luke uses it in the book of Acts. And it's in chapter 27, verses 15 to 17, we're not going to look at it there, but it's the story of Paul being on the boat and there's the shipwreck and he's making his way to Rome and he's trying to get there to have an audience with Caesar to share the gospel and declare the good things of the Lord before Caesar. And Luke records that they just put up their sails and they let the wind carry them. It's the same word. And the image we are given as we think through how Luke uses that word in Acts and perhaps what it means to have all Scripture God-breathed, breathed out by God, as Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3. As Peter says, man being carried along. You just think about a ship with its sails fully loosed and the wind just driving that boat along. See, when we think about inspiration, we think about God breathing out his word through human authors. Peter tells us that scripture isn't the product of human invention. Rather, it's the product of divine inspiration accomplished through human instruments. Peter actually wrote this book. And he didn't write it because the Holy Spirit grabbed his arm and forced his arm into the positions that it should go as he wrote down those Greek words. Rather, the Holy Spirit moved the winds or the sails of Peter's mind in such a way that as he wrote this book and as Paul wrote the scriptures that Peter himself references and as Matthew writes his gospel account and John writes his, that what they wrote... They did so through their own understanding. 
They did, through, they did so through their own style. They did so oftentimes through their own choice of words, sometimes creating new words. But they did so as the Holy Spirit moved and guided to them. And what they wrote is what God wanted written. It's interesting that Paul even is reported to have written other letters and There's references to that in the New Testament. We don't have those. Part of why we don't have those letters is because the Holy Spirit didn't want us to have those. He carried their minds and their thoughts that as they wrote, it was the very word of God that God wanted written. So thinking about trusting directions in the midst of uncertainty. And as you and I navigate life, today we don't necessarily have to look at the road signs the way I did just 10 years ago. And it's just kind of amazing to think we've come that far. In my pocket, I can pull out Google Maps. And I can plug in the address and be told exactly where to go. Carrie and I actually have a rule in the car when we're driving somewhere and we don't know exactly where we're going because at that point we'll pull open Google Maps and we'll set it there on the dash and it will give us the turn-by-turn that we need. The rule is we don't argue with the GPS. And what we've found is that when, when we argue with the GPS and we decide to go off script, we start arguing with each other. And what we've learned is that, yeah, Google's actually a little smarter. And if we just trust the directions given, we usually end up getting exactly where we need to get. I think there's another helpful way for us to think through God's word. How many times in our lives do we argue with the directions? Yeah, 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 God, you, you say that, but... I didn't want to do that. Or I didn't feel that way. Or I had this experience that somehow opened up some other understanding for me. Peter himself is talking about the greatest spiritual experiences. And he himself is saying, look, God's word's more sure. God's word's more reliable. Go back to verse 19. There we're going to see Peter give us a command. And he says, look, we have something more sure or more fully confirmed. It's the prophetic word to which you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. See, the image Peter now gives us is similar to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, 105. Thy words, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He says, look, God's word's more sure than even the greatest spiritual experiences. Root yourself in that. Follow that. Don't argue with the GPS giving you directions because you're in the midst of a dark world and it's your lamp. It's your source of light. You'll do well to pay attention to it. You want to know how to do well? You want to know how to follow the Lord well? You want to know how to glorify Him by being disciple-making disciples? Pay attention to the Word. 
And it's a lamp shining for us. And will do so until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus in the book of Revelation is called the morning star, the bright and morning star. The day dawning is a reference to his coming. Peter says, look, until Jesus returns, until that coming that I told you about, that I did not cleverly devise, happens, don't argue with the GPS. Don't argue with the word. It's more sure than even the greatest spiritual experiences that I've had and that you've had. I told you I wanted to end in Psalm chapter 1. The very beginning of the Psalter gives us a picture. Gives us a picture of what it looks like to delight in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And here we see this agricultural metaphor and imagery come back for us. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Want to know how to follow the Lord by being a disciple-making disciple, what that looks like? God's given us everything we need to know. And there will not be an experience that you and I have that will ever change something that he has said. Perhaps it will help us understand it a little bit more fully, but it will never change. Because what is more sure than even the greatest of spiritual experiences is the prophetic word and what God has revealed to us. Don't argue with the GPS. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Well, God, we ask that you would grow in us a increasing dependence on your word, an increasing acknowledgement of its power and authority. God, help us to be people of the book, people who don't move away from your word people who test everything through what it is that you have revealed to us. God, help us to have a rooted conviction that even the greatest spiritual experiences that we may be a part of are second place to your word. God, we just ask that you in our lives would continue to help us understand your word. Help us to obey it. Help us to delight in it. And be these planted, rooted, flourishing people who bear fruit and do not wither 
Carpenter's tribe. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for joining us, and be sure to check us out on the World Wide Web.